I hope all of you guys are doing well today. Thank you all for coming. I'm so thankful that God is doing a work here in Encounter Church of Lodi. Uh, I do believe that God is doing a work here. Um, And I'm just so thankful that all of you guys are here. We are in November. We started this back in August. And uh, I believe that God is doing a great work. Uh, And I I do believe that we are becoming better disciples of Jesus, which is very important as Christians. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Mark 11, 8 through 11. Mark 11. Uh, We will be continuing our series uh, that uh, we started when the church started, and it is, and we've we've talked about our King Jesus, and today we will be talking about the death of the King, the death of the King. If you do have your Bibles, again, feel free to join me at Mark eleven, uh, verse twenty-one. Mark eleven, verse twenty-one. Well, actually, uh, verse eight. My bad. Uh, And it says this, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem And went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Right there where you're at, if you could close your eyes and bow your heads and we will pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you're doing here at Encounter Church. I pray for the life of every single person here that they may be blessed by your presence. We have worshipped you, we have sang to you, and we are so thankful, Lord, for what you are doing with Encounter Church, with the lives of every single person who is here. God, we know that everything that we do is to glorify you, to make your name known around the world, Lord, and here within our hearts in this community. Lord, I pray that we may do what you want us to do, and that today as we hear your word, we may learn more of who you are, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. So what we read today is a story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And he came on a donkey, on a colt. As he entered, the crowds made a red carpet by spreading their cloaks on the road. Other people, they spread palm branches on the road, and they made we could say, a red carpet. All the people celebrated and shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna in the Greek, you could see on the screen, it's a shout of praise. And it means literally help or save, I pray. So these people were saying, save, save us, essentially to Jesus. That's what they were saying. The people also said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
because they knew that salvation would come through Jesus Christ, the son of David. He will bring the kingdom. The king, what we're seeing here, the king is entering his temple, his city, the capital, and we're seeing him enter his throne. Wow, what a scene. But even this beautiful scene was not the ultimate sign of King Jesus' majesty. Later in Jerusalem, Jesus ate with his disciples. The disciples had a dispute. In Luke 22, 24 to 30, it says this. Again, if you want to join me with your Bible, you can. Again, Luke 22, verse 24 to 30. It says this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So here we have a picture of Jesus. He's on the table. He's at the table with his disciples. And typically we think of the ruler as the one who is not the one who is serving, but the one who is being served. And here Jesus is telling us that he's the one serving. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in, tri- in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom. I give you a kingdom. I transfer you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The disciples were being typical at the, in the scene. They just saw the great scene of the triumphal entry. So they wondered, man, there's a great kingdom coming. I wonder who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom. Then the things intensified, so much so that the disciples started to have a dispute. Peter probably shouted, I will be the greatest. I will have so much power. But Jesus, as he usually did, addressed the underlying issue. Jesus said that the kings of the Gentiles, the kings of the world, rule by lording. In fact, those who have authority, even oppressive authority, are considered to be the greatest. But according to Jesus, that's not how it's going to work in the kingdom. Actually, The greatest will be the youngest. Remember last time when I mentioned children? And that entire idea is that the least will be the greatest. Jesus taught that the one who rules through service is the greatest. Look at Jesus himself. He was the greatest. Yet at the table, he was the one who would serve his disciples. 
Then Jesus begins to share, you have gone through some hard stuff with me. He's talking to his disciples. And look, there is a kingdom coming. And I am giving this kingdom to you. As the Father gave Jesus the kingdom, Jesus is giving the kingdom to his people. Something I did not mention when we, know, when we went over Daniel 7 with that picture of the Son of Man going to the Ancient of Days, of a human one going to God, is that later on we also see that there's a relationship between the human one and the saints of God. And here we see that picture, we see that being fulfilled. Jesus, the Son of Man, received the kingdom and now he is giving the kingdom to the saints of God, to his disciples. When the disciples receive the kingdom, the image of the Garden of Eden will be restored. Humans will once again rule as God intended. They will bring order, peace, shalom, and love. We will beautify the earth again. A conferral of the kingdom the transfer of the kingdom is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. The, the king who gives us the kingdom serves, and we see the greatest act of service in the scenes that follow. One of Jesus' disciples betrays Jesus. He sells Jesus off for 30 pieces of silver. And that's about $600 American dollars. For $600, Judas sells Jesus to people who didn't like that Jesus was the Messiah. Then Jesus stands in trial. And though he did no wrong, the people say and find him guilty and execute him. One of the main truths that the Gospels describe in how God became king through Jesus. That's one of the truths. When we look at the Gospel, one of the truths is that through Jesus, God has become king. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The story Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell is the story of how God became king in and through Jesus both in his public career and in his death. Today, we will see how God became king through the death of Jesus. Before, during, and after the cross, Jesus underwent procedures that the Caesar, the king of Rome, would undergo during his inauguration. For instance, Jesus received royal garments a crown, albeit it's a crown of thorns, but he nonetheless received a crown. And this all happened even though the Romans mocked him. When Jesus walked to be crucified, he walked as an emperor would, with his crown in his robes. In Mark 15:39, a centurion of Rome recognized that instead of Caesar, Jesus was the true son of God, the true divine king. If you have your Bible, go with me back to Mark, and we'll go to uh, chapter 15, Mark 15. And I'll be reading from verse 33, and it says this. At noon, 
darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed this last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Here's a picture from Matthias Grunewald. He's one of the greatest German artists of the 1500s, and he painted this during the Renaissance. And I feel like through this picture, you could feel a sense of the agony that Jesus felt. And you could also see at the right that the, that the centurion is there. A centurion was a servant of Caesar, of the king of Rome. And he would typically keep watch of those criminals who would die on the cross. And he would just make sure that they do die. This centurion, in this case, he recognized that Jesus was king. And I wonder if you will recognize that he is king today. The centurion said that Jesus truly was the son of God. What did it mean to be God's son? Maybe son meant something like being the nation of Israel, like he was a representative of the nation of Israel because God was like the father of that nation. Or maybe we think of when we read the baptism, we read about how That God has a specific son. The son of God is the king of Psalm 2-7. Israel's anointed king. Maybe that's a possibility. But what is most likely is that this centurion was using the Roman, this phrase son of God in a Roman way since the centurion was Roman. During that time to be the son of God, it was a regular title. And it, it was taken typically by the Roman emperors. Therefore, the centurion was saying that Jesus is king. Not the Caesar. Not the Roman emperor. I think we need to cry out what the centurion said. Especially today. Jesus is the king. Not the one who sits in the Oval Office. The elections are coming, as I know most of you know. And whatever results from it, Jesus is the king. The kings or politicians of this country are broken. And as Christians, we must pray for them. But while the kings of this earthly kingdom are broken, our king, the king of our primary citizenship, he, our king, he is perfect. And it's interesting how our king demonstrates his power. When was it that the the centurion recognized that this was the son of God? It was on the cross. 
It was through the death of Jesus, not through the power of Jesus, that the centurion recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross revealed to the centurion that Jesus is king. As Jesus died on that cross, he was losing strength and consciousness. But with his last breath, he, cried, he shouted a loud cry that shows us the profoundness of his emotions. After six hours on that cross, Jesus shouts, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which we know that it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On that cross, on that dark day, Jesus feels abandoned by God. James R. Edwards tells us that Jesus was rejected and scorned by Israel. Sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome. Denied and abandoned by his own followers. Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Its horror is so total that in his dying breath, he senses his separation from God. Jesus knows true suffering. We serve a king who knows what it is like to suffer. He knows the pain that you may feel that abandonment, that forsaken feeling, the feeling of feeling that you're alone. He knows that feeling. John includes a description that we don't see in Mark's account, the account that we just read. John 19, 19 to 22 says, Pilate, he was the Roman governor who had Jesus to be executed. He, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In the following verses it says, Mary, Many of the Jews read this sign. For the, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. If we look back at the drawing that we looked earlier by Matthias Grunewald, I know that it's kind of hard to tell, but there are some writings on the very top on that sign. And you can see, if you pay close attention, that it says, Enri. And that is simply an acronym, an abbreviation, saying, I don't know Latin that well, but it's essentially saying, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Jesus was executed as a criminal. The Romans would typically put a sign, a public notice that would be attached to the cross. This notice would indicate the charge, the reason why the criminal was being executed. What did Jesus' public notice say? Why was he being executed? 
in the common and official languages of his day, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, the reason Jesus was crucified was this. He was the king of the Jews. That's the reason why he was crucified. The Jewish leader said, no, Pilate, instead, right, that his problem was that he thought, he, he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate doubled down on what he said. Jesus is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Even Pilate recognized this. Something else to note is what happened when Jesus gave his last breath. So what happened was that the curtain, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies within the temple was finally broken, ripped, torn. So there's no longer this veil that separates the Holy of Holies, the presence of the king and the world. Jesus has torn that curtain. Now the kingdom and the, and the presence that was present within the Holy of Holies was open to the entire world. The kingdom has been unleashed. The authority of our king, of Jesus, has been established. It has been established through the most shocking means, the bloody cross, the triumphal entry, that we began with, where the Jews shouted Hosanna, this entry was not the ultimate sign of Jesus' majesty. No. The death of Jesus was the ultimate sign of our king, of his majesty. With the cross, we are given a decision. Will we recognize Jesus as the Messiah the king who died on the cross? Or does the blood of Jesus show you that you don't want this type of king? Maybe this king seems like no king. You don't want a king who would die and show his strength through the cross. How could it be that the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who has been promised since the book of Genesis, how is it that this promised one dies on the cross? How could he be the one who brings peace? How is he the one who has the power that was promised to King David? The kingdom and the cross are part of one another. We cannot understand the kingdom until we understand the cross. The kingdom through the cross challenges all, all of us to, to think of the kingdoms of the world in a different light. The reason for this is that the cross shows us that the kingdom has, that power, true power comes through a different way. It comes from a way that we didn't expect it to come. The kingdom does not come on a big brown or white horse, but instead it comes on a donkey whose rider shares authority and serves instead of being served and who finds power by dying on a cross. On the cross, we see what happens when God's kingdom comes. We see on the cross the truth of the kingdom, a king dying for his people. I would like to end in Luke 24, 46 to 48. It says this, 
He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The suffering of the Messiah, Jesus, is connected to the forgiveness of sins. Through his death, Jesus releases humans from all debts. We see God's new exodus achievement. Since the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, Jesus the Messiah, he is our, our Passover sacrificial lamb. He is the blood that we put over our doorposts. Since the achievement of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, now God has rescued us, his people, from all forms of slavery. I want to conclude with three short tales. Here's the first one. There's a king and his company. He's going with a, a group and he's traveling together. A wolf comes, tries to attack the king, but a servant got in between the wolf and the king. And the servant he went in to protect the king. This makes sense. This is something that could happen because it makes sense that a lesser, the servant, would die for someone in a higher position. Here's another tale. A king and his company are traveling together. A wolf comes, tries to attack the company, but the king gets in between the wolf and his servant. The king dies in protecting his servant. This story is unlikely, but it's honorable. Imagine the president dying sacrificially for a member of his secret service. This shows a different type of commitment. But here's the last story. A king, for some reason, he's transferring traitors of the state. And he's transferring to maybe another prison. And a wolf comes, tries to attack the traitors. The ones who try to murder the king, to try to overthrow the kingdom. The wolf comes, tries to attack these traitors. But the king intervenes and dies. All while protecting the traitors. This story is just crazy. But the third story is exactly what took place with Jesus. We see the king dying for those who rebelled against God and his kingdom. Jesus absorbed the poison of the serpent, the poison that had plagued humanity since the dawn of humankind. He absorbed it so that humans can once again have authority over the serpent. Jesus took the chaos, the tohu vavohu. He took it, the things that, the evil things that come from us. He took our chaos so that we could have shalom, so we could have peace with God. And as a result, 
We can rule like Adam and Eve, even better than Adam and Eve. Rule over the animals, rule with God and under our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can be restored with God because of the death of our King. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the death of Jesus, Lord, that Jesus dying on that cross was Jesus defeating the serpent and taking our place. For God so loved the world, Lord, that you sent your only son to die on our behalf so that if we believe God, we will have eternal life. Lord, we we have struggled, we have messed up, we have sinned, but... Jesus, you, you absorb all of that nasty stuff. And it's all because you love us. What a king we serve. And I'm so thankful, King Jesus, I'm so thankful that we are able to worship you today. And I pray for anybody here, Lord, who is struggling to see your kingship, that they may recognize that, yes, there is a king who is perfect. Even though this world has so many kings, so many self-proclaimed kings and rulers who are imperfect, there is a perfect king. And this perfect king serves and loves, chooses greatness, not through coming on a white horse, but coming on a donkey and dying on a cross. Jesus, I pray that if there are people struggling here, seeing you as king, struggling here, seeing you as a king who could love them. I pray that you may show them that you do love them and that the greatest act of love is that you died in their place, even though there have been so many times when we have sinned, rebelled against you. Thank you for being such a great king, and I pray that you may continue to bless us and that we may continue to grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray.